The Rappaport Diamond Podcast is brought to you by the Rappaport Research Report, business intelligence for the diamond industry. Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, the podcast that reviews every inclusion in the industry. I'm your host, David Ehrlich, and today we'll be talking about corruption. A curious thing happened this month when diamond mogul Nirav Modi and Gitanjali, the major manufacturer he's associated with, were accused of bank fraud of the highest order. According to the Punjab National Bank, Modi allegedly took out fraudulent bank loans of 1.8 billion U.S. dollars. This staggering sum scrolled away, Modi has now fled to a safe haven in the Seychelles, free of the threat of Indian authorities. But the companies which he owned are now taking heat for his actions, with employees being told to find new jobs and companies in America filing for bankruptcy. All of this has the industry reeling. With the headlines still blaring, it's a good time to look at how corruption affects the diamond industry, on both a local and global level. We will also have a conversation with Avi Kravitz about his recent trip to the Hong Kong International Diamond Gem and Pearl Show. Sonia Estra-Sultani will be telling us all about jewelry at the Oscars. We will also be talking about the latest in diamond technology, especially recent developments in blockchain technology. And Joshua Friedman sat down for an interview with Gem Certification Assurance Lab President Donald Palmieri to talk about stopping corruption in the industry. Leading us through the murk and mystery is Rappaport's ever-vigilant editorial team. Rappaport's news editor Avi Kravitz is here to tell us all about crime and punishment in the industry. Hi, Avi. How are you? Great, David. It's good to be here again. Joshua Friedman, Rappaport's news reporter, who is constantly digging through the dirt to expose the truth to the light of day, is also with us. Hi, Joshua. How's it going? Hi, David. And joining us for the first time in his podcast debut... Rappaport's peerless publisher, John Costello, is with us today. Hi, John. How's it going? Hi, David. It's a pleasure to be here, especially uh, I feel humbled to be in the presence of such greatness as Avi Kravitz and Joshua Friedman. So, uh, you know, looking forward to a, a good, robust discussion. It's all downhill from now, John. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that, you know, we're talking about crime today. I was hoping maybe to hear from each of you about which crimes you fa- have found most interesting or intriguing in the diamond industry. Why don't we start with you, John? Well, I think the my notion of the great crimes are the crimes that can never be solved. And I think uh, I might be a bit premature in calling it a crime, but we just read this week that the National Museum of Prague has found out uh, that its wonderful collection of diamonds, sapphires and rubies uh, actually contains many fakes. And the the key one is this wonderful five-carat diamond that was acquired in the 1960s uh, and it was seen as kind of the centerpiece of the collection, I believe. And they found out that it was actually glass that was just cut to look like a diamond. So the question is, were they purchased as just fakes or did someone over the years manipulate them and sw- switch them out? Uh, so, But it seems that the, the curator who was in charge of this collection uh, from the beginning has actually passed away, so it's unlikely that they're going to get to the bottom of this. So there's a lot of red faces in the National Museum of Prague, I would imagine, this week. And Joshua, what crime has you riveted? There was a, a famous heist in uh, in London, in Hatton Garden, a couple of years ago, and uh, I think it shocked the trade there quite a bit. I think people were very nervous about whether they had lost any goods um, and it was meticulously timed and was run by a, 
a ringleader who was a uh, an elderly gentleman who is not the usual um, demographic that one would associate with a heist like that. And, and I think it captured a lot of people's imagination. There's no retirement age for gangsters, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's all that theft that keeps you young. I actually think he died this week, didn't he? I thought I read he died this week. <laughs> At least he inspired a whole generation of... Uh, of breaking artists to yeah, come. And diamonds are forever, so it's a, it's an a association with longevity that uh, that he's looking for, I think. Yeah. And Avi, have you ever heard of a crime that really got you going? Um, there's so many. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. That's an unfortunate because, because story. It, it is. It is unfortunate, but uh, diamonds have a certain glamour about them that sort of lend themselves to these um, daring heists and and also to um, you know potential Hollywood script. Um, I remember it was a, a few years back that um, there was a, a gang of thieves that sort of rammed their car through a fence at the at the Brussels airport and and held up the the Brinks truck that was loading parcels of diamonds onto onto a, a plane that was was headed for for one of the diamond centers from originally from Antwerp and they initially got away with it and uh, then the industry sort of got involved with it the GIA issued a report of uh, of all the all the diamond reports their numbers that uh, that were taken in the heist and um, if I remember correctly, Joshua, they, did they find those diamonds? I can't remember if there was a follow-up to that. But um, but okay. certainly the the backstory of uh, you know in my mind having a a group of guys just um, ramming a car through a fence is a great opener to a, <laughs> <laughs> to an action movie. You know, the diamond industry is quite cinematic. It is shocking crimes all, but I think that we can safely say. The most noteworthy crime right now, the one that everybody is talking about, is the Nirav Modi embezzlement of $1.8 billion fraudulent bank loans. And it's really a shocking amount of money. I mean, if you had $1.8 billion, what would you do with it, John? I'd have a hell of a lot of fun. (laughs) I think the interesting thing about this scandal, though, any any scandals that are you know, in, in any industry such as ours, the diamond industry, there there are two ways that such scandals uh, affect us. And number one is the impact on the industry and the trade. And then there's the impact on the consumer side of it and the repercussions in terms of uh, how people look at the diamond industry. Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, it's, it's very clear. Um, and I think Abby can go into detail about this, about the impact on the actual industry. But if you look at the if you look at the impact on the uh, consumer side, how consumers view the industry now, how that is affected, that's going to be a, a, a more medium to longer term uh, kind of equation to see how, how it computes and to see do, does this kind of corruption have an impact on the way people buying diamonds, uh, view the industry and, and view uh, mined diamonds. Yeah, I agree with you, and uh, I think the the concern is particularly great in in India amongst Indian consumers, given that um, Gitanjali, which was the other company involved in the in the fraud, along with Nirav Modi, was such a high profile um, jeweler. They would use a lot of Bollywood actors, cricketers, um, celebrities uh, in their marketing and their advertising. So they were a household um, name. 
And this, uh, this case has got such great attention inside India that um, it's uh, naturally caused some caution amongst, uh, amongst consumers there. And India is a sizable market. We forget that you know, we, when we focus on the U.S. consumer and China's growth, we tend to um, discard India's potential as a, as a consumer market. And it is great. It's a, it's a, the third or fourth um, biggest consumer of diamond jewelry and has a wonderful tradition of uh, jewelry purchases given their attraction to gold and the, the esteem with, with which they, they hold gold in. So, so I think it will have those consequences in the long run, or in the short term at least. So Joshua, reports are still rolling in that shockwaves that this fraud has caused are having a big impact both in India and outside. Maybe you could give us some details about what we've seen, what kind of outcomes we're seeing from this fraud. Well, the Nirav Modi has a large empire of um, jewelry companies around the world with a slightly um, complex ownership structure, but essentially he has been the ultimate owner of three diamond and jewellery firms in the US, uh, Firestar Diamond, uh, Fantasy, and A. Jaffe, which owns the um, the A. Jaffe brand, um, funnily enough. And um, uh, they, all three of those have filed, have now filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the US. Um, what they said was um, their supply chain was very reliant on certain factories in India, which were also connected to the fraud case, um, not as perpetrators, but because of their being under the Nehruv Modi umbrella. And uh, as a result, the supply chains for these companies was really cut off very quickly. When the authorities seized Modi's uh, assets and Modi's properties, I've already failed to cut a long story short, um, but uh, I've... um, Ultimately, they they weren't able to operate these companies and they were left with uh, no option but to seek someone else who could buy them. And uh, that's the situation they're in now. Uh, They don't owe huge amounts of money to the the trade from what we've seen. Um, I guess in the US, the biggest victims have been these companies and people who work for them. So has there been any luck finding buyers? Are they having any success? Uh, they've said that they, uh, they've they had a lot of interest, but uh, as far as I have seen, no buyer has emerged yet. But from what it seemed, it would one would emerge soon. It, it seems that their stores are still open, though. Um, when I was in Hong Kong for the show, I was in a um, in one of the malls there, the IFC Mall, which is, has a lot of the higher-end brands. And I saw in the distance a Nirav Modi store, so I got quite excited because I was going to have the opportunity to go inside and see what type of goods they they sold and, and question the, the salesperson about what's going on. Um, and it was almost, you know, poetically timed that as I approached the store, the shutters were coming down, <laughs> the windows they closed for the day, and I was sort of appealing them to them to to stay open for a few more minutes. But uh, but I missed them. But the point is that their their store was still open, and I think it's under a franchise model, and um, that they're still they're still operating at the moment. Yeah, but I think outside of Modi and and you know the the big spotlight on him and his business operations and and the the businesses that he has either 
owns directly or has a part of the the share in them. I, I think we've already seen. I think it was today that we announced on a, a Rappaport News. We picked up that the State Bank of India has already introduced stricter lending controls on the industry. So these are very uh, immediate and tangible kind of a backlash against this. And the question is, how deep does this go in India? Um, I was reading uh, in the Economic Times in India that they're saying that some two thirds of the diamond trade in India remains outside uh, the official channels. So it really puts the spotlight back on the industry and how we as an industry try to uh, regulate ourselves and work with financial institutes to try to minimise the likelihood of, of this happening again, and especially at this scale. So that's a good point, John, because you know this is the second time in a very short span that an Indian firm has been caught taking out massive fraudulent loans. Uh, just two years ago, actually, a similar thing happened with Winsome Diamonds. And today, there was an announcement that there was an arrest in that case of somebody related to, but not actually of the, the Winsome group. I mean, this is a recurring problem now. Are we seeing Indian lenders and lenders around the world showing any nerves about working with the diamond industry? Well, the, the banking sector has, um, has for a long time considered the, the diamond industry as a, as a high-risk sector. Um, and what these cases do is they feed that, that perception globally, not just, uh, not just in India. My impression is that um, the, the bigger companies in the trade, um, and there are many of those in, in India, the bigger manufacturers, don't seem too worried about their credit lines. What uh, they think will happen in the long term is that it, it will affect the smaller players in the industry, that they, they won't be given bank loans as easily as, as they may have before and will, and will therefore lead to a faster consolidation in the industry. Others say that, no, it's actually those bigger companies that have been carrying out these frauds and they're, and they're the ones who are going to bear the brunt of, of the greater caution. Yeah, and I think the, the financial community and especially the banks are, are, are really in a, in a difficult position because if you think about people who work in banks, what expertise do they have in estimating the value of diamonds, uh, whether it be rough stones or whether it be polished diamonds? Um, what do they know about the difference between synthetics and, and, and if synthetics are mixed in with real? So I, I think they're very nervous about it. Things like this recent case with Modi just exasperates that nervousness. And the sad thing is, as, as Ivy said, you're going to have... Uh, finance being squeezed out of the industry and being pulled back and that that will have a great opportunity cost that will hit I think the smaller and medium sized uh, players a, a lot harder and uh, I think India um, and the regulators in India and, and the finance community and the diamond community in India really have to step up take ownership of this and actually show proactively that they're 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 trying to, to squeeze potential uh, modis that are out there out of the industry. So have we seen the industry taking any steps to self-regulate and prevent other other people who might do what Modi did from taking those, you know, from taking that first step down the path of corruption? I think it's too early to tell, to be honest. You know what I mean? This is just unfolding. Um, and, you know, the diamond industry, like any other industry, is is political. There's uh, government organizations involved. There's uh, the financial regulators involved. Um, and and a, a lot of vested interests in, in this, especially in a market as big as India. But but I do believe that uh, the industry in, in India will take some moves and, uh, and, and, and try as much as that can help. But it's, it's, it's really, you know, unless 
everyone in the industry is makes a concerted effort, I, I don't think it will result in anything uh, tangible. Yeah, to, to the industry's credit, there, there has been um, an effort to, to bring greater structure to the two businesses um, and to improve on the reporting standards, etc. It's, it's no longer a handshake industry as it, as it traditionally was, um, where banks are, are acquiring proper invoicing and the, and the rough suppliers. Um, if you want to be a, a buyer of rough diamonds from De Beers or El Rosa, you need to show proper financial reporting, et cetera. So, so there, it has been a, um, a, an improvement in the structures of the way the industry is doing business, but clearly there's um, still, still work to be done. So final thoughts on this. Do you think the industry will be able to get past its corruption problem, or do you think we have to accept that there will always be bad apples, just like there are in any industry? Yeah, look, I, th- I think uh, diamonds are susceptible to fraud. Uh, you know, they're 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 very small, they're very mobile, and you know, I, I think it's going to be very very difficult to eliminate fraud altogether. Uh, but the industry does have to come together and put in place hand in hand, especially with the the finance uh, industry and banks, uh, to try to combat this as as best we can. But there's no doubt about it. We're not going to wave a magic wand and suddenly for fraud to evaporate. But to have fraud at the size of Modi, to have an like that and listening to what um, his competitors in India were saying and they were looking at this guy and his rise to greatness with almost disbelief like how was this guy for years able to get away with this and and people were even had question marks in the industry uh, back then but we really when we have question marks we really need to be feel that we have a channel where we can raise those issues and and, and not allow something the size of Modi to to grow uh, untested and uh, and the result being, uh, I heard, in excess of $2 billion. I know they're saying $1.8 billion, but I think the, the final figure will be in excess of $2 billion. I think you hit the nail on the head in that the industry does need to take ownership of, of these cases and not um, sort of sweep them under the carpet. But I think also it needs to be proactive to show the um, good that uh, the industry is doing. There are obviously bad apples out there, but there's also a lot of um, positive things that the diamond industry is contributing to to society in terms of, firstly, the product that we that we provide. It brings a lot of happiness and joy to everyone, and also in in terms of the social projects that the that the industry is involved in. And I think a lot of those aren't, you know, those are often uh, ignored, and uh, and it's. Um, as a counter to the bad publicity that um, a case like this brings, um, I think we need to to accentuate those um, good good things that are happening. And I think the DPA now has a responsibility. It's been spreading the good word about the, the wonders of the uh, the diamond industry and the, the good that diamonds do in the world. And I, I think it's at times like this that, as Abby said, we really need to enforce that. And, and while the I think the industry will suffer aftershocks, especially when it comes to the banks and, and, and money, the, the key thing is that we don't let, let this affect uh, consumers' view of our industry you know, our industry is full of good, honest people. It's surrounded by a wondrous product that does remarkable good and, and offers value to communities uh, in India, in Africa and in other locations throughout the world. So we just we can't lose sight of that and we have to make sure that that message is, is loud and clear to our consumers. Have you heard about the Rappaport Research Report? If you haven't, then you're missing out on the latest data report from the Rappaport team. 
Did you know that more than 80% of SI Clarity Diamonds in the 50-pointer category listed on RapNet in October 2017 sold within three months? Or that listings of 3-carat diamonds jumped 30% on average across all categories in Antwerp this February? With the Rappaport Research Report, you can get valuable and actionable data to make smart, savvy investments and start increasing your profit margins. Don't get left behind. Subscribe to the Rappaport Research Report today to get business intelligence for the diamond industry. Joshua spoke with Donald Palmieri on his work leading the Gem Certification Assurance Lab, GCAL, and on his insights about corruption in the diamond and jewelry industry. We're joined by Don Palmieri. Don has a 50-year uh, career as uh, president and, and founder of the GEM Certification and Assurance Lab, or GCAL, and is an expert in all matters to do with corruption in the industry. Don, why is the jewelry industry so susceptible to fraud? Well, I think first that uh, we need to consider our product. Our product is one of uh, great mystique uh, and allure, and um, I think that's what attracts so many people to it or has attracted so many people um, uh, to it over the uh, thousands of years that uh, gems and jewelry have been used and coveted and worn. But I think that to get to the heart of the matter today is that um, while we have demystified uh, a lot of the classification of diamonds and gems and gold and platinum and things of that nature. And we have measuring techniques and classification of uh, quality. There's still great mystery between the banking industry and the jewelry industry, the insurance industry and the jewelry industry, and uh, the public and the jewelry industry. So uh, you have bad people in all types of uh, endeavors in all types of industries. Unfortunately, uh, because there is this mystery surrounding gems and jewelry, I believe that we attract more than our share of the bad people mm. who are committing the, the frauds that we see today. So you've been a, a Chapter 11 trustee, so you've come across uh, presumably some of the worst cases that there have been. Um, what can go wrong? What type of fraud have you, uh, have you come across or corruption have you come across in your time uh, in the industry? Well, uh, basically, bankers compete for business just like everyone else. Not so much anymore, but uh, prior to um, a lot of the major problems and bankruptcies we've had in this industry, um, bankers were very competitive. And the more competitive they are, I have found, the less questions they ask. There's also another factor, which is very important and something that may go unnoticed there are people, people of wealth, uh, who have come into our industry or who have amassed wealth, the origin no one really knows. And I think that, um, that banks have put more trust in the people than they have in the numbers. And while that is something that is very desirable, uh, I think that has been the biggest problem. And I think the most recent uh, bankruptcies we've just seen occur in India and the U.S. are a direct result of where a bank was um, influenced by wealthy individuals more than really looking at the numbers of what was going on internally in the business. 
Does some of this come from uh, pure greed on the part of either banks or of, of borrowers um, who want to make as much money as they want, whatever the um, ethics or legality of it? Well, I think you've, you've touched on it right there. Um, greed motivates uh, most all bad behavior. And I believe that you can't really assess equal blame because if you didn't have bad actors outside the banking industry, I think you wouldn't have so many problems within the banking industry. You know, let's face it, bankers are not experts on our individual businesses that they are assigned to, uh, to deal with. And so it's easy for someone that appears to be of means, far more means than the banking people, to pull the wool over their eyes, so to speak, and to give them phony documents and uh, show them uh, memo records of millions of dollars, you know, around the world and, and things of that nature. Uh, so you're uh, speaking to us from New York, um, and a lot of our listeners are, are based in the U.S. And one of the questions they're probably asking is, in light of the Nirav Modi case, is, is this problem just an Indian problem? Is it that there's been a succession of diamond and jewelry fraud cases in India, but this doesn't happen in the U.S.? Or are there really cases going on in the U.S. that, um, that maybe haven't come to light? I believe that they have, they have happened and they will continue to happen in every major diamond and gemstone area, um, country, whether it's country or city. I've been aware of many, many cases where the, uh, for example, the Nirav Modi case uh, right now is having ripple effects in this country, in the United States. It actually touches on our largest retailers, the downstream retailers, uh, almost every major retailer has done business with one or more companies. So we are yet to see the damaging effects of this completely because of, obviously this was just announced recently. But I think that we're going to have some major supply problems. And I, I think that, of course, there are probably many, many other diamond dealers who are not involved in this who are uh, ready to step in and take over the supply chain, but it just doesn't happen overnight. So I think we're in for some difficulties. And I do believe that any country that is uh, that has a uh, significant industry in diamonds, gemstones, and precious metals has these same problems. Don, one of the uh, areas of the financial sector uh, that is also very important for jewelers and is also, I would guess, um, an area where one might find a lot of fraud uh, is insurance. Um, is this a problem? Do you find that, have, have you uh, come across in your time diamond and jewelry companies that have acted fraudulently with regard to um, how they deal with, with insurance? Yes. As a matter of fact, I do a lot of business testified. As a matter of fact, I've testified in Israel and the U.S. and Singapore, China, Canada, even the Bahamas, having to do with fraud, money laundering, uh, false claims. And uh, most recently, we just got a judgment out of um, Israel that there was a major uh, $10 million fraud case that was actually perpetrated in uh, Hong Kong. And the, the individuals originated from Israel, so that's where the case was. But I see a lot of this false claims, and uh, we find a tremendous amount of claims exaggeration and uh, false claim schemes um, 
for tens of millions of dollars. I mean, these are not small, just small claims. These are very, very large claims, uh, staged robberies, uh, mysterious disappearances, things of that nature. So it's it's very difficult to talk about fraud in the industry without touching on uh, on grading, which is something that keeps up a lot of the amateurs at night. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how grading can be susceptible to fraud and how that's an area that's not immune to corruption? Well, it's been going on in the United States for 35 or more years. As you know, GIA came up with a, um, a grading nomenclature in the 1950s. Even they didn't use it in the laboratory level uh, until the 1970s. And then, of course, it became not just a grading report or an uh, advisory on the classification or grading of a diamond, but then it actually became the gospel. And so people called them certificates, even though they were not guaranteed. So then a number of other laboratories cropped up in the United States uh, in the late 70s mid to late 70s, and the fraud has been, has continued since then, unabated, slightly, only slightly interrupted when something comes up uh, in the news or there's a major lawsuit uh, that gets some national attention. All of a sudden, everybody gets religion in our industry. But again, it's pure greed. The business model of most grading laboratories is deeply flawed. It is about inflating grades to get more business into your laboratory. And um, I'm dead set against it. By nature, I am a consumer advocate, and I believe that the future of our industry is going to be based on the amount of confidence that generations have in our industry. Our industry has gotten a tremendous pass from the consumer just simply because they forget, they have short memories, or they haven't discovered the level of fraud. And look, everybody's looking for a great deal. So, of course, jewelers blame consumers that, oh, they, you know, they're shopping for price. They don't want us to make a profit. The only way we can make a profit is if we have an overgraded uh, diamond or we have a so-called overgraded certificate. So we have a standard nomenclature that's used throughout the world, which is the GIA nomenclature. Unfortunately, we don't have a standard standard, if mm. I can yes. <laughs> use that word yes. twice, yes. Um, internationally. Even laboratories who go by the same name from one country to another do not grade anywhere near the same. And that's a scandal, of course, uh, been heavily reported uh, by Rappaport uh, in the magazine and online, etc. in the past few years. But this has been going on for decades. Is the uh, the onset of automated grading something that could help stem the the progress of uh, of corruption in the in diamond grading? I would only say one phrase: junk in, junk out. So if if the machines are not verified and calibrated on a daily basis, which is what we do in our laboratory, and if the correct information is not put into the instruments. And one other thing, how reliable is that instrument and who's watching the machine? Uh, You know, we talk about consensus grading in the laboratory, but where's the consensus with one machine to another machine to another machine? Uh, They can say, oh, well, we put it the same diamond in three machines. It's unlikely, but um, 
I haven't seen a machine yet that can do what the originator, and I've bought all of them, uh, what the originator initially claimed. Uh, so I haven't found a color grader that is 100% or even 90% uh, yet. And uh, in terms of clarity grading, I kind of doubt that it is going to be 100%, but we'll see. I mean, uh, I know that one uh, company uh, has just announced that they're they're going uh, machine grading, but they're going to have gemologists to watch the machines or to verify the machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not that's going to happen in real life, we don't know. But do I believe that there is technology that is possible? I believe that there is, but I don't think it's in our industry, and I don't think our industry is big enough or important enough to that type of technology to get them to actually come into this industry in a serious way. Mm. So final question, uh, back on the the topic of financial fraud. Uh, Do you believe that the next massive uh, financial fraud case on the Nirav Modi scale is just around the corner? Um, And will you be surprised when, uh, or presumably you won't be surprised when it comes up? No, I believe that uh, this ripple effect is not finished yet. I think there's more to come out of India. I, unfortunately, I think there's more to come out of the U.S., and um, we can only hope for the best, but it, I will not be at all surprised. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much, Don Palmieri, and uh, we're very grateful for your time and your insights. My pleasure. This podcast would not have been possible without the support of Rappaport Academy. Rappaport Academy launched just a few months ago, giving students the opportunity to learn all they need to know about the diamond industry. It's kind of like this podcast. But if the Rappaport Diamond Podcast has left you with a thirst for more knowledge about the diamond industry, go to rappaportacademy.com and sign up for the Fundamentals of Diamond Trading, your e-learning course for successful diamond trading. Avi just got back from the International Diamond Gem and Pearl Show in Hong Kong. So, how was your experience there? Well, Hong Kong, the Hong Kong show is always a telling event for the industry. Um, there are two uh, major shows in, in Hong Kong that take place each year. Um, the first is in March and the second is in September and they give a picture of how the market is performing before and after the holiday seasons. Um, that's both Christmas in the U.S. and the Chinese New Year in the Far East. And so coming off a, a, a good Christmas season, people went to the Hong Kong show with fairly high expectations, actually. And there, there was a good feeling about the market in the, in the run-up to the show. With those higher expectations, there was some, some disappointment, I think, in, in terms of the, uh, the level of business that was done and the visitor traffic that arrived at the show. People felt that the, the show was too close to the Chinese New Year, which had... Um, finished just a week or two before the show began. And so there was a feeling that the Chinese retail buyers did not come to the show. Having said that, it was fairly positive. There there was a good feeling about the show and manufacturers, um, which continued the momentum from, from the first two months of the year. So, I mean, it's awfully interesting that the, that the high expectations that were generated by good news had sort of this, uh, chilling impact at the show, and I'm glad to hear that overall it was a positive experience and a positive event. But do you have any key takeaways from your time at Hong Kong? 
well, apart from the trading aspect of it, which is obviously very, very important, people also go to the show to see the different uh, jewelry designs and understand what's uh, what's happening in the market. Um, but exhibitors and traders, dealers were talking a lot about the Nirav Modi case, obviously. And there was also a lot of talk about um, blockchain, the uh, a number of um, manufacturing companies and miners um, and technology companies which are becoming uh, more of a voice in the industry, which is a positive trend. Um, we're speaking about how they can improve the provenance of their diamonds, how, how they can work with retailers to show consumers um, that uh, the diamond they purchase um, can be traced and that they're an ethically sourced diamond. Many are trying to understand how blockchain can be used in that um, provenance claim. That was a very clear topic that was on people's minds in uh, at the moment in the industry in general, I think. You know, it's funny. A lot has been said about blockchain recently. Very honestly, these days, I can hardly go anywhere and not hear somebody tell me about blockchain or cryptocurrencies or how I should start investing in Bitcoin. But I think the interest in the industry that is really having a tamper-proof record that will be able to change the way business is done. And recently there have been a few announcements uh, about these new diamond tracking technologies. And Joshua, you've been reporting on stories about Everledger, Dharmanandan, and Canada Mark, right? Yes. Um, actually, the, the one that uh, caught my attention was actually none of those. It was um, an acquisition that Lucara Diamond Corp did. Uh, they acquired a company called Clara Diamond Solutions. And what it does is it um, brings a new way of selling rough diamonds. And they they claim that it involves um, blockchain and cloud technology. I have to say I hadn't quite understand what the blockchain element of it is. Um, but what it does is it um, it takes diamond producers, rough producers, diamonds, and it essentially sorts them uh, so that the manufacturers who are buying their diamonds are able to get exactly the goods that they want. And they say that the problem at the moment is that uh, rough producers sell their diamonds in parcels. So you might have 25 stones and you only want 10 of them. But because you want those 10, you have to buy all 25. Um, and you end up getting what they call, um, actually the, the new CEO described it as um, the rough diamond pinball machine, where diamonds kept keep on getting bashed up into the supply chain. And these poor diamonds, no one wants them. Uh, they claim it's actually quite a game-changing system for rough producers, and they do say that it's, it's different from what, um, say, De Beers want to do, which is using blockchain purely as a diamond transparency tool to ensure clarity of, uh, of the supply chain. Yeah, I think what we're seeing here um, is the industry jumping towards technology, and we see it, as, as you mentioned, David, in cryptocurrency. Um, there's been cryptocurrencies launched for the diamond industry and now you have blockchain and I think I was talking to Joshua and uh, Avi not so maybe a week or two ago and the first time we really heard about blockchain in the diamond in industry was about six months ago and in the last month or two there have been all these like avalanche of, of announcements of different companies and I think there's there's two main things we have to look at in, in cryptocurrency and in blockchain. And they all, maybe they are the panacea to all our ills in the, in the diamond industry. But there's two key things. There's, number one, there's a lack of regulation. 
and there's also uh, a complexity issue. Blockchain is a very complex solution. And I think uh, one thing that Avi, which you might touch upon, Avi, is you found that a lot of the real hardcore blockchain guys were saying a lot of the products being launched at the moment, these a lot of apps and other companies coming out with new products or whatever, that they're actually not blockchain. So there's a, there's a mass confusion about actually what blockchain is. It sounds very good, very sexy, but I think uh, the industry is running ahead of itself a little bit. Yeah, and there's definitely a, a buzz about blockchain. And uh, I was talking to one of the um, sort of industry veterans in, in Hong Kong, and you know, we were discussing that just the, people are just throwing out this word blockchain, blockchain. We've got this blockchain, blockchain. In a similar way to um, the previous fad was, um, you know, the synthetic testing machines. And so everyone was developing their own method or their own machines that claimed could test um, for, for synthetics in a parcel of natural diamonds. And they weren't all foolproof. And the similar, similar issue we're facing with the blockchain, that there are a lot of claims about blockchain that expose the industry's lack of understanding. And I think that's where we're at at the moment, is that uh, from across the board, from the beers through the manufacturers to the retailers, are trying to understand how this blockchain technology can be used to um, safeguard the industry. And my understanding is that it's really the, the back system that secures the transactions um, that, that are taking place. And it's not, it's not the tool that a retailer is going to use to show the provenance of a diamond. That part is left to the trade to show um, through an app that they might develop or a marketing tool that is secured by blockchain to show through um, online imaging the diamond's journey throughout the distribution chain. And that's what Dharmanandan has done, um, which is a manufacturing company in India. They've worked with Everledger, which is a technology company. So Everledger developed the blockchain and Dharmanandan have developed a, a marketing tool or an app that shows the journey of the diamond through its lifespan. Yeah, and I think like the, the real killer application of blockchain has to begin at the mine level. Like uh, manufacturers can do great, wonderful things and they are doing and it's very exciting and it's very good and positive for the industry. But until we really do have a verifiable system of, of tracking diamonds from mine right through to the marketplace, you know, if we have only segments of the pipeline covered by uh, blockchain, it really is not utilizing it to its full capability. I think we'll get there. I think the announcement from De Beers and the likes is, is very positive. But, uh, you know, blockchain is going to take a, a little bit longer before it really brings its full benefit to the industry. So that's a set of interesting things to think about, about technology and blockchain in the industry. And I'm sure we will hear more about it in the future. John, I'd like to thank you very much for, for gracing us with your wisdom and insight. Thank you. It was fun. Joshua, as always, timely and newsworthy. Thank you. It was decolor as always. <laughs> Navi, I hope you had some fun. Thank you, David. I had a great time. Coming up, Sonia gives us some insight on Oscar's jewelry. Rappaport Magazine has been redesigned. Now more readable than ever, Rappaport Magazine has undergone a shift in style and substance that makes it a valuable resource for anyone in the diamond and jewelry business. Learn the latest trends, see what's stocking and what's selling. Get top quality market insights from Rappaport's team of expert analysts and reporters. Subscribe to the Rappaport Magazine. Know your industry. Sonia Estra-Sultani, Rappaport's Editor-in-Chief, came in to tell us about what people were wearing at the 90th Academy Awards. 
So, Sonia, what red carpet trends did we see at this year's Oscars? Hi, David. So, first of all, let's say that no one wore um, Nirav Modi this year, which happened a lot <laughs> in previous years, but all the stylists that read the news. So, that's one thing. Um, the Oscars were really interesting because in previous awards, I've seen a lot, a lot of gemstone jewelry, but this time it was a real big, big diamond fist. Everybody was wearing diamonds, apart from one, and I will, I'll speak about her later. It was great to see how the big brands were placing their jewelry. Forever marked it very well. They lent beautiful diamonds to Alison Janey, who won the Best Supporting Actress. So for I, Tonya, and she's um, a bit of an older actress. And so they also put the diamonds on Mary J. Blige, a big diamond earring. And actually they showed the trend. A lot of the actresses are not wearing necklaces anymore. They wear big earrings, a lot of chandelier earrings, a lot of drop earrings. So the bigger, the better. And most of them are wearing diamonds. So that was that was really, really nice to see. So the chandelier earrings, is that a new trend? It's not a new a new trend. You have uh, big pieces from Harry Winston, usually. Um, Harry Winston is also very big at the Oscars. Where Elizabeth Moss was wearing Harry Winston, Helen Mirren was absolutely stunning in sapphire and diamond. Also big, big earrings. Nicole Kidman, I think, had some of the most beautiful chandelier earrings this year. And it's not so much a new trend, but it seems like everybody's actually wearing them because they, they look beautiful on a red carpet and also because it means that the actresses can wear lower cut dresses and not take the attention away from their dresses. And suddenly you have these big, big earrings going with them. So that must explain the uh, shift away from necklaces then so that they can wear more contemporary dress designs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the exception to the rule, there were two exceptions, one for the worst and one for the best. Um, <laughs> <laughs> chandelier earrings are big, but it seems like Selma Hayek decided to also wear a chandelier herself. She was wearing a Gucci dress with a lot a lot of crystals on it. I mean, she's married to Mr. Gucci. She's married to the CEO of Caring. So you think she has access to the whole Gucci wardrobe. She's just a beautiful, fantastic actress, but um, her dress outfit was a bit of a, of a miss this year. But it still didn't overshadow the beautiful Harry Winston chandelier earrings that she was wearing. So that's her. And the other exception for um, necklaces wearers at the Oscar is the absolutely stunning Gal Gadot. Israeli actress who was Wonder Woman and she went for a beautiful exception to the rule of no necklace. She went for a massive Tiffany & Co. aquamarine and diamond necklace. It was really beautiful, art deco inspired and she was one of, I think, one of the actresses that got the most mention and notice for the night. So You know, it helps to stand out. So, was there a piece that you found particularly appealing? I have to say the... Sotwa, the Tiffany & Co necklace was really outstanding. I think it took almost a year to make from what Tiffany said. So it's from the latest collection and it's just a real beautiful piece of art. So thank you, Sonia. Pleasure, David. Thank you for listening to the Rappaport Diamond podcast. If you enjoyed this and are looking for more diamond and jewelry industry news, don't miss this month's issue of Rappaport magazine, where the thriving luxury industry is under the microscope. And if you're looking for an edge for your diamond trading business, check out the Rappaport Research Report, Business Intelligence for the Diamond Industry. For Avi, Joshua, John, Sonia, and the whole Rappaport team, thanks for joining us.